They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. My name's Aaron, I'm your host. Uh, I know many of you have questions about the Libertarian National Convention situation, which is to some degree still up in the air. Uh, Of course, last episode, uh, we told you, and you probably found out from other uh, places, that uh, on May 9th, the LNC, the Libertarian National Committee, voted to reschedule the convention into a two-part convention hybrid type thing. The first session would be an online caucus starting around May 22nd, I think on May 22nd, uh, for the purposes of nominating our candidates for president and vice president. Um, and the, the thinking behind that was to do that as soon as possible because of ballot access deadlines in several states that are coming up very quickly. And uh, we have to have names to put in the forms to, uh, to get those people on the ballot. Um, the, the second half of that proposal was for the remaining business of the convention to occur from July 8th through July 12th at an in-person convention in Orlando, Florida. I think it's at a place called the Rosen Center. Uh, uh, Check me on that just to make sure I'm right. I think they may have had a name change since um, uh, I was actually there a few years ago for an LNC meeting. And I think they've changed the name since then. But it's in Orlando. And the rest of the convention business was to take place or is, as far as we know right now, scheduled to take place between July 8th and 12th down there. So uh, that's the plan that was agreed to. And there's been some questions as to whether uh, the LNC is going to stick to that. There's been questions as to whether they can get the technology down to allow more than a thousand delegates potentially to vote for president and vice president. Um, I, I think there's a limit of a thousand members in a zoom meeting, which even the concept of that just blows my mind. But, uh, I don't think they're close to figuring out how to make this work. Technically, I could be wrong. Um, there's also talk from people like the chair, Nick Sarwalk, who has hinted, I think from that camp that, once the online caucus starts, that a motion could be made to just go ahead and do all of the convention business uh, um, right there uh, online uh, and obviate the need for the meeting in Orlando. So to be clear, the Mises caucus, we are in favor of an in-person convention to do the party's business. It's required by the bylaws. 
and uh, we're skeptical. Uh, we I think that uh, people like Josh Smith, who's a member of the Mises Caucus and running for chair, agreed to that compromise where we do the caucus online to get the presidential uh, race decided. Um, but we're, we're skeptical of whether or not that's going to happen without a significant hitch that would violate the rights and the expectations of the delegates. So the bottom line is we want our delegates to be the one who decides who our nominee is, who our chair is, and who sits on the rest of the LNC. And the, the alternative to the de- delegates choosing would be for the LNC to say, hey, well, um, things aren't working with this online voting uh, thing that we set up. So we have to get this done now. And we're going to go ahead and nominate the president and vice president uh, for our party and not have the uh, delegates weigh in. Now, there's also been, oh, let's let the delegates vote and then uh, some other way and then have the LNC ratify that. Like I say, there's a lot of things up in the air. This COVID-19 stuff has uh, just uh, occasioned a lot of um, uh, stuff that doesn't seem right uh, on the face of it. But we're working hard uh, to make sure that the delegates still get to decide who our nominee is. I know a lot of you have put a lot of time and effort into becoming delegates or alternates. And uh, we're committed, Josh um, and uh, Michael Heiss, and all of us at the Mises Caucus are uh, committed to making sure you get to vote as a delegate and you get to vote properly and that your vote won't be uh, stolen or disregarded or anything like that. So we're also working hard with people that we sometimes don't get along with too well or who don't really like the Mises Caucus in some ways. Uh, There's people all throughout the party, uh, all different stripes of libertarians who are seeing that there's a a, a potential crisis coming and uh, we're working as hard as we can to avert that. So if you're a delegate or an alternate, as I said last uh, last episode, you may be getting an email from your state party with details on how they're handling things. Please pay attention to those and pay attention to any uh, pay attention to those emails from your state delegations. And if there's anything you don't understand, uh, let us know uh, at the Mises Caucus. Uh, we will. You can send it to me at communications at lpmisescaucus.com or send a message to the, to the Facebook page or uh, bring it up in the group. So please pay attention to the communications you get from your state parties. Also pay attention to any emails that you're going to get from the Mises caucus. Uh, we'll be putting important information in there. If you're not signed up yet to get Mises caucus emails, I strongly, strongly suggest and hope and implore you to do so. Uh, go to takehumanaction.com and join up there. Uh, it's never, um, there's not a lot of, there's no spam. There's not a lot of foolishness. We keep it to, you know, weekly updates and, uh, time sensitive stuff. That's it. So you're not going to get a lot of junk there. So sign up at takehumanaction.com. You can also join the Mises caucus Facebook group, uh, to stay well in the loop. So just, uh, Google libertarian party Mises caucus or search for that in Facebook and you'll find the private group uh, that you can apply to be let in. More than 5,000 people in there, and we'd love to have you. Now, on to today's guest. He's the founder, co-founder, and CEO of Minds.com, which is an open-source social networking platform that's dedicated to radical transparency, 
monetization, digital rights, blockchain, and equity crowdfunding. I hope you enjoy my talk with Bill Ottman. All right, Bill Ottman, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. How are you? Hey, good, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is um, a couple of days after I listened to your uh, uh, appearance on Unregistered with uh, Thaddeus Russell, and I enjoyed that a lot. And we're going to try to hit some different uh, notes than that, because I assume we're, we have a little bit of overlap in our audiences. But uh, I was talking to you just before we came on uh, the show Silicon Valley. And when I mentioned that you smiled and uh, the storylines uh, on that show, the last two or three seasons, especially seem to fit in with a lot of what you talk about when I, when I hear you talk. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, Mike judge is a genius and he's just on the pulse for sure. The, the difference that I haven't heard though, I haven't honestly watched the most recent season, but I, I was paying attention when they started talking about like building a decentralized internet yep. and, and all that, but they don't really mention open source, they which, don't. Yeah, which to me is the just as important as decentralization. I mean, if you have a proprietary decentralized network, it's sort of like a oxymoron almost because you need you know to have everybody running code. I mean, actually Napster is sort of an example of like a proprietary decentralized network because they didn't share their source code. If Napster had open sourced their code, Napster would probably still be around. But because they kept it to themselves, it was sort of able to be targeted and shut down. Talk about that uh, at kind of a, um, a more elementary level, why open source is, is so important. What the, the nuts and bolts of how that leads to decentralization. I mean, it's sort of like, imagine you, it's the blueprints, you know, the, the, the blueprints of how to build the app. I mean, it is the actual app. You can just, the, the code is the app. So by giving it away, you're sort of making it more resilient and censorship resistant. If you came up with like a great invention and you kept all of the, plans for how to build it secret and then you know the invention got destroyed and you got killed you know right the the world wouldn't have a chance to recreate that invention it would just be lost so that's the that's how censorship can be thwarted by open source is because everybody has the blueprint and can reconstitute it's like 3d printers and things like exactly, that. exactly yeah 3d printers <coughs> um a lot of those blueprints are are open source actually i think that uh that thaddeus had cody wilson on yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. um so uh, also in silicon valley there's a lot of talk about um you know companies and how to how to raise money and capital and stuff like that did you see any truth in into how that works i don't know if you guys play the same sort of game or not oh yeah For, i mean they're <laughs> you know making perfect commentary on it and how everyone's just shilling themselves and selling their souls. And, um, we did a equity crowdfunding round. So actually our community owns stock in the company, like over 1500 members of the site invested. We're probably going to do another community equity round soon. 
we also did a more typical series a which was huge and awesome but it's with a, like a blockchain group who's you know very pro freedom and you know support you know not like a vulture vc yeah there's there's you know now you're starting to see investors being much more aware of things like privacy and these types of values because actually in the long term that's where the money's going so people are already investing in ways to get around the Googles and the Facebooks and stuff. Is is that because that's what the consumer wants? I think it's because it's what the consumer wants, but also you're even seeing a comp a, a VC like Andreessen Horowitz, with you know Mark Andreessen's. On, I'm pretty sure he's on the Facebook board, and they just announced a 500 million dollar crypto Web three fund. So. You know, the smartest VCs actually want to disrupt themselves. They want to be on both sides. They want to, you know, be in the Facebook thing, but then they are already thinking 10 years ahead and they know that things are moving towards more of a, a crypto Web3 direction. So they want to be in on that as well. And, and, you know, they're not stupid. So I think that that's ultimately a good sign. And because, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters, They've definitely gone off the deep end in a number of ways, but you know I'm not so naive and closed-minded to think that they weren't somewhat valuable to you know the evolution of the internet. It was like the internet started; everything was very decentralized. You know, people were running email servers at their house, and then everything centralized. But it made it way easier. You just log in to another machine; you don't have to deal with anything. Right. There's this big leap of convenience. And now people are saying, oh, okay, you guys have too much power. We gave too much to you. And so we need to take control back. But we're still not at the point where it's simultaneously convenient and uh, privacy focused. It's still, you know, we're not there yet. It's getting right. there. I think in the next, you know, five years we're going to have super convenient, easy to use dApps as they're called decentralized applications. And yeah, we'll get, we'll get there, but it's really just starting. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I guess you call it web 2.0, that, that big change in the internet um, that I, I'm old enough. Um, I'm 44 and I remember the internet before, you know, Facebook and Google, and all of that and how it was more anarchic and decentralized and uh, you were able to be a little more anonymous and things like that. Do you think the, the web 2.0 stuff, if I, if I got that terminology correct uh, was, you think, you know, I, I always go conspiracy theory a little bit on some of these things. Do you think that was a way to kind of rein in um, some of this stuff and get everybody in these networks so that we could spy on them easier? Partially. Yeah. Some projects I'm sure, you know, thought, Oh, look at all the, you know, all the data we can get and all the surveillance tools and whatnot, but not everybody. I mean, you know, uh, ask Jeeves, uh, Netscape, uh, AOL. I mean, servers, are you know tip they were it's easier to build apps on a central server 
you can just control things more easily. So, you know, when you're running like a peer-to-peer -peer network, you know, look at Bitcoin, for instance. Okay. Bitcoin is an incredible <clears throat> revolution, but it's right now it's pretty slow and expensive. That's not even necessarily going to be changing anytime soon. It's, it's just the nature. I mean, I think that fast peer-to-peer -peer networks are possible and there are some cool projects that are showing, you know, much better performance, but when you have to coordinate thousands of machines all over the world and create incentive models for these machines to participate in the network, it's just, it's just harder than having all the control on, uh, on, on your own servers. You can access everything when you need to, you can make it move, move as fast as you need to. So I don't think it's all a big conspiracy. I think that, you know, in a lot of ways in the early days of some of the web two companies, like they did help start revolutions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of those, some of the big companies that you did mention on that uh, other appearance, but I just kind of want to go into more detail. And one thing that uh, I had heard you guys mention was I, I didn't know, I haven't looked into it, but that apparently Facebook and Google have a lot of government subsidies at the, at, at the local level out there. Is that, is that the case? Like how, how connected are these companies now to government? And the, the reason why I want to get into that is because as a libertarian, you know, if you say, um, Oh, you know, Facebook is censoring me. Well, if Facebook is totally private, then they have the right to on their space, you know, ha uh, ban or promote whatever they want to. But if the government gets involved and is helping them, then that, then I think there's first amendment grounds and stuff like that. So what, what kind of case can be made um, against these companies when it comes to how, how um, connected to government they are? They definitely have a revolving door. Um, and I think that Facebook, some, I think I saw some articles coming out that Facebook is spending like 50 or a hundred million dollars now a year on, on lobbying efforts and, you know, they're, they have departments, particularly in like the content moderation department where, you know, yeah, they, they're just constantly talking to law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies. We know that from the Snowden leaks and the PRISM program. Um, but I don't think that, I mean, well, also, you have gigantic government contracts between Google and, you know, Amazon and, you know, Microsoft. And, you know, Microsoft is running cloud programs and so is Amazon for the government. I mean, but, you know, that's not necessarily totally evil. It's like governments contract out private companies. I mean, it's probably saving yeah. the public money to, to, to use those. Cause they, you know, those are very efficient companies, but there's just not enough transparency as to what is really going on. And certainly, I mean, the, 
one crazy story about, with Vietnam and Facebook was that Vietnam ISPs were throttling Facebook and they, and they used it as ransom to get Facebook to take down certain content that they didn't like. And so they said, listen, Facebook, we'll only, you know, keep your performance fast in our country if you do what we say. And they definitely uh, bowed down. So that's really problematic. I mean, we, so, you know, we're taking a much more firm stance on like a First Amendment based content policy because, I mean, we're a U.S. company. So that's the law that we have to abide by. And, you know, if, if another country comes comes to us and tries to get us to change that, we're, we're not going to. Um, so that is in like Twitter does all of these, you know, basically has different flags in different countries. So like the Pakistani Twitter is very different than the U.S. Twitter and there's different content policies associated. There is a little bit of an interesting argument. You know, if you're really trying to spread as much information as possible, this is this is a game that we're we're not playing yet. But I'm not I'm not going to be naive again and say that it's not a debate worth having. If you're Google and you're not in China or Facebook, do you do? You, and this is a question for you: Do you try to get your foot in the door and say, okay, we we got to get this technology in that company? In, in, into that country so that people can have at least some access to information. And then maybe over, over time we can expand it, but we're going to basically do what their government says with regards to what is allowed now. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like yeah. you, can either, you can either stand firm and be like, no, we have our commitment. They're going to shut us down, have the people use VPNs, and they can figure out how to access us another way, but we're not going to bow to uh, you know, laws in, in other countries with restrictive censorship policies. What, what do you think about that? Well, it seems like I, I would always kind of err on the side of not cooperating because once you get into that calculus of, okay, we'll give them a little bit here so we can get our foot in the door, then the argument is always, oh, let's get our foot a little further in the door and we'll still compromise. Right. So mm -hmm. to me, it's like, um, it's like the old joke Winston Churchill asked this lady if he would sleep with her for if she would sleep with him for a dollar. And she said, no. Well, what about for ten thousand dollars? She said, yes. Uh, and he said uh, um, and, and basically he was like, oh, all we're doing now is negotiating over the over the price. Right. Like once you've agreed to one price, you, you're you've already compromised on principle. So. Uh, to me, I, I think that um, I think technology can find like I like the idea of if people can get access to VPNs and it's a moot point, right? Exactly, like, and that so that's the stance we've we've taken so far. But you know, at the same time, if you were going to be totally purely principled, then you know you might even say, why would we obey? the law in the u.s right because, <laughs> because you know there's certain restrictions. i mean the first amendment is pretty much the best in the world but you know it's not it's not a hundred percent censorship free right so what are the um um 
censorship issues, do you have any contacts with the government? Have you ever gotten them uh, saying you need to pull a specific piece of content off of minds.com and on yeah, what there was, there was one that got covered by like Reuters. Um, there was a guy in Pennsylvania who was going around to all different networks and making what they call true threats of violence. And so I, th in, so, you know, we, uh, we, we had to comply with that. And he, you know, was basically creating these graphics of like a gun, like a first person shooter graphic, like yeah. aimed at like different groups of people. And yeah, I mean, we, 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 we have had certain conversations and, but it, it's, it's, we're, we're only contacted when it's in, you know, a case like that. Like we've been, we've been contacted by other governments and we've said no. So it's, um, you know, cause we are not fully decentralized. We're not even close to fully decentralized. We're working on it. And there's components of our network that are decentralized, like our, our token, our, our uh, virtual currency system, payment system. We support Bitcoin and Ethereum, and we have our own crypto token. And then we also leverage like WebTorrent for some peer-to-peer -peer streaming of videos. But, you know, we, de we definitely use central servers. And, and any project that says that they're fully decentralized you know, unless it's like Bitcoin or, you know, a lot, there are some pretty decentralized cryptocurrency projects, but, you know, a fully decentralized social network doesn't really exist yet. There, there are some that are more decentralized than us. Like there's a, there's a pretty cool uh, cypherpunk one, uh, Scuttlebutt, which I definitely recommend if people can figure it out. It's, it's not, e it's not easy to install, but it's, it's, you know, you have to download the application and it's, it, it is more infrastructurally decentralized than us, but we want to get there, but we also want to provide a really good user experience so that we can educate people about these issues because a lot of, a lot of the more geeky, you know, more pure decentralized projects are just so inaccessible to a normal person. It's like going to take a hundred years before. Yeah they you know reach i don't i even know if they ever will will reach a, a mainstream audience so it's a, it's a tough balancing act so what's the um what's more important right now for you becoming more decentralized or getting say doubling the amount of users you have um definitely just working on the user experience and yeah, I mean, we're fully focused on, on decentralizing major components of our, of our network and at least offering people the option to publish to immutable distributed file systems or publish to central servers, because I don't think that everybody necessarily wants everything to be decentralized either, because if you publish, a photo to a fully decentralized network, you can never delete it. Right. You might want to. Right. So when you talk about user control, it's not so simple as like decentralized equals freedom and centralized equals slavery. 
Yeah. It's, it's not a clear black and white split like that. So I think that you do want both options. And so central servers and decentralized servers kind of can mesh together and coexist. And so we're not, you know, we want to grow, but we're not actually even focusing that much on, on growth right now. We're mostly focusing on just user experience, embedding the principles into the tech. We're building like a, a better end-to-end -end encrypted messenger service now, working on federation so that if someone else installs a, a version of mines, you know, the different nodes can talk to each other. Someone can set up their own app with, with our code and then the networks can talk to each other. So, I mean, you know, we want to grow, but we're not going to be able to grow until the user experience is really, really, really good. And like, we're working really heavily on translation features. Like we just got like 10,000 users yesterday from Thailand who, oh, are, wow. like, who are bugging out about privacy issues and issues with Twitter and, you know, they're signing up and using it, even though it's not fully translated into Thai. You know, they're just dealing with it and like 10,000 people, you know, so we, we definitely want to fix, you know, we need to fix all that kind of stuff before major critical mass is able to be achieved. Right. Before we get into talking a little more, bit more about mines, uh, I want to kind of lay the groundwork in people's minds, why they might want to consider getting away from Google and Facebook. Um, so let, let's talk about like, I, I hate Facebook, but I spend a lot of time there because with the Mises caucus, we have our Facebook group on there and we have a page and things like that, but I don't like the user experience of Facebook. So how do you think they have a good user experience or is it, it seems to me the, the major uh, thing in Facebook's favors is just simply the fact that everybody's on it, but just about everything else sucks. Mm, I think that there are certain annoying things about the user experience, but Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you know, they have super brilliant developers that work for them and they create really nice software. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's certain decisions they make that might be annoying from time to time, but actually, generally speaking, you know, this might, you might not expect me to say this, but I would say that a lot of these apps have great user experiences. That's, that's why people stay. Okay. They, they hate the fact that they're spying on everybody, that they're, you know, the algorithms are messing with what you're seeing They're you know, they're trying to control your ideology that there's all these philosophical things that are just totally off the wall, but they have, you know, billions of dollars to spend on creating smooth, fast technology. And they're good at that. And they're, they know how to keep you engaged. That is what user experience is. You know, if you were going to expand the, the idea of, of user experience into you know, I would argue that seeing an ad for something that you just talked about or walked by, that's probably a bad user experience because that freaks people out. Right. You know, when you are, it's just in your face that you're getting spied on. 
that's arguably bad user experience. But the the ad tech is working well. Do you see what I'm saying? No, yeah. Though the new, I don't know if you have the new. Uh, I, 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 someone sent me a, a screenshot of the new Facebook uh, interface, and it's we, there's so much blank space. Yeah, I haven't got it yet. I've heard about it, but um... it's. I mean, they're doing it because it's a mobile centric okay. design, um, but it is odd. I so, but again, you know, their messenger is a beast of an app. I mean, they, WhatsApp, Instagram, Instagram is one of the most, which owns Facebook, which most people don't even know, but Instagram is a beautiful app. The yeah. design is amazing. Yeah. So I, I don't try to deny that, but it's like, if it's, it's like the devil in disguise. So you know, you got to You got to break free from it at some point. And it's like, you know, we had like millions of followers on Facebook and, and the pages just became, you know, when we used to get like thousands of likes per post and then it was like, you know, 50 likes per post. Yeah. It's like, okay, guys, this is, we're not going to play this game anymore. We need to focus on building our own network. And so, yeah, I mean, I, Again, I don't think people need to go cold turkey. It's like until the mass migration happens, it's like I, I just recommend people dabble with more ethical tech. You know, install Firefox and Brave, Brave for your browser. Check out Minds. Check out Mastodon. Check out, um, you know, there's a handful, Scuttlebutt, um, there's a handful of really cool apps out there. There's a really cool site called prismbreak.org. I think it's prism-break.org. And it pretty much goes through every app, whether it's a word processor or a search engine and shows shows you like the proprietary surveillance version like Gmail, Microsoft Word, and then gives you like an open source okay. privacy-centric version. So you okay. can so you can you know break out of that that system and it's so easy like one once you start getting in that habit and honestly it starts to get addicting because you start to really be aware of what you're doing and what you're using and realizing like wow you know i may just be using microsoft word but guess what i'm connected to a network microsoft knows everything that i'm typing even right. though it's even though it's a desktop app they know all of it it's all it's all going through language processing programs. You know, it doesn't mean someone's sitting there like watching you, but it is getting pulled into their data surveillance complex. Right. So um, Tucker Carlson on an interview I saw um, with you said that these tech companies, the the privacy concerns they are violating people's privacy far more than any government ever could. And I, I thought that was maybe a little bit of an overreach, but um, I'd be interested to hear your, your take on that. Like, are they doing the same thing? Are they doing different things? Um, and also well, how, how, how have things gotten better since Snowden at all? Did that do any good? Well, the government is, ta like I mentioned, they're tapping on the tech company's shoulders to get uh, pipes into 
their systems. So it's not like is government worse or better than tech companies? Like they're sort of intertwined is what all of those leaks taught us. And yeah, I mean, I would say they, they probably have more access than, you know, into your devices than, than governments typically. And governments are just trying to, you know, get their hands on the access that the, the tech companies have. Right. Um, but I do think that things have been, been improving overall. I think that, yeah, th there's, th those leaks were huge in terms of getting privacy and encryption into the public consciousness. And I think a lot of, of tech companies are, are adopting new, new principles and understanding that you can't just really play that game anymore. It's not, you know, you, you're not, there's no reason to, it's like, why would you want to betray your own users? Your users are all you have as a, as a tech company or your customers. I mean, if you're going to betray them, then what are you even doing? What, what? Well, what, <laughs> your what, customers? Wouldn't their response be, Hey, like, like you just said, Bill, we're not reading the stream of consciousness of what Aaron's doing throughout the day. It's just all going into the big pot that makes our stuff better. Right. So it's, they have the data, but they're not looking at it at a granular granular level. So what, what really difference does it make the fact that they know what I talked about with my wife over breakfast? I, I mean, it, it seems creepy just on the face of it, but what's the practical well, we do know in certain circumstances that individuals do look. Okay. So, you know, there are people who work there and just because, you know, there's not a physical set of eyes on you at every moment of the day. I mean, there, there are admins and, and there have been scandals where people go and, you know, look up stuff on an ex-husband or ex-wife or something. So that does happen. Just the fact that that's even able to happen is crazy. Right. So, um, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't willingly submit to that if you knew that they could, you know, look in my camera, you know, activate my camera whenever I, I wouldn't sign on to that. I wouldn't use that phone if that was their stated policy of, of just grabbing any image they wanted to at any time. Right. Right. And I mean, also, you're training like there's something so dystopian and sick about training your own the, training the AI <laughs> that is trying to take away your freedom because that's what we're doing. Facebook actually just launched this thing today called the hate. I think it was called like the hate meme challenge or something like that. And they're trying to train their AI to detect hateful memes. Right. And so they're trying to get people to actually, you know, help click on certain meme memes, which ones are hateful or not to help train the AI. And it's like, God, don't you realize that that is going to be used? Well, there's going to be collateral damage from that AI making mistakes, which, you know, could cause a whole movement of 
you know, activists or whatnot from a certain country to just blanket get censored when they post a certain image that gets detected by the AI. And then, you know, it can't really understand the nuance of the meme. And just because, you know, there was some pixel signature that was similar, it just gets taken down. And it's just, it's really scary. That's, that's what freaks me out is, is, is that it's, and, and Facebook even says, you know, this AI cannot detect sarcasm. It, it, it's it's pretty dumb. Right. Um, so when you talk about AI, are you worried about the AI being used by people uh, to limit our freedom? And if so, how? Or are you, are you concerned about AI getting out of control? Uh, both. I mean, it is already be, being used to limit our freedom. That's what it does right now. Well, give um, some examples. Table. Some examples of that. It's just what about what see, we can say. When you're scrolling through your feed on any of these networks, what you're seeing is an algorithmic conglomeration of stuff that Facebook wants you to see based on what you are engaging with and what it predicts you will be interested in. So they're trying to engineer your experience and there's no way to change that. You can't, I mean, there might be a way buried to get more of a chronological feed, but it's, it's not easy to find. And, um, and, and they're just pulling stuff out that, you know, may be deemed to be offensive or whatnot. I mean, the problem is that, I mean, even Twitter is doing this new like language sensor where if you're, if, 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 if you're about to write a bad word, this little pop-up comes up and says, are you sure you want to say that this could cause people to report you? And so it's like sort of in good intent. It's like, want people to be nice to each other. But it's really dangerous because, I mean, what if you're saying, um, I don't know if we can swear on here, but. Uh, uh, mildly. Not, let's not go to. Uh, I, I effing, I effing yeah. love you. Okay. Okay. Right. What does that mean? You know, a bad word is detected, so it's going to get punished and hidden in the comments or hidden from the feed. But I'm actually saying something nice. Right. Yeah. So, the, the F yeah. word is so versatile. It can be used in literally a thousand different it's ways. It's an incredible tool, the F word. Right. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk about, uh, about minds.com. We've talked about how, you know, Facebook is, is making money off of us basically by grabbing our data and advertising to us with it. How does minds.com, what's the business model there? How do you, where is your revenue? We're actually from? not against advertising. Uh, we, we actually have an ad network, uh, but it doesn't spy on people and it's totally open source. And, um, we, you know, we're not following people around. It's, it's more of a consent based system. And so we have that, but we also have just premium accounts, which Facebook doesn't have for some reason. So you can pay to like, not see at it's like five bucks a month for minds plus. You can get like some exclusive stuff. You get some some bells and whistles. You cannot see any ads. Um, and then Minds Pro is more for professional creators. You get your own website. You can do a custom domain. You get more video features. You get monetization features, so you can earn 
earn money for the traffic that you're driving. And I've been bringing this up a lot, but it's, and I might've brought it up on Thad's podcast, but you know, what happened to just charging money (laughs) for a product? Right. Um, It's like Silicon Valley's got into this mode where, you know, you don't charge any money and you just spy on people instead. But that, you know, at this point, I think a lot of people would probably pay Facebook or Twitter or Google, um, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks a month to not have all that stuff happening and be able to control their experience more. I don't know if people would trust them to stick by that promise. Oh, exactly. That's the problem. Because if the, if, if their code isn't transparent, then even if they say they're not doing it, you don't know. Right. So actually WhatsApp says that they're encrypted and they brought in this, this group open whisper systems, which is actually a great, a great company. I'm pretty sure that they implemented the encryption on signal, which is a, a, a an open source encrypted messaging app, which yep. is, which is good. Yep. Um, so WhatsApp brings them in to set up encryption, but it's like, well, we can't even, how are we supposed to know? Right. Like the, you say it's encrypted. Okay, you're. I have to trust you. It's encrypted. The CEO of the founder of WhatsApp left the company because of the, he was so disgusted by what <laughs> Facebook was doing with the privacy stuff. And the same thing happened with the Oculus founder. The same thing happened with the Instagram founders. Literally, like every founder who sold a company to Facebook just like runs away in disgust after <laughs> after a couple of years of being with them and. And then you have Zuckerberg walking around being like, oh, you know, I'm interested in encryption and free speech and decentralization. And he does these big notes to the public about how he's looking into these things. But it's just like, it's, it's empty. It's just empty words. He, he could, I think there's a part of him that maybe is just knows that he's made a huge mistake. And so he has to give some lip service to these kinds of issues, but then he's also giving lip service to all the people who are pressuring Facebook to, you know, ban more content, ban more content. You know, there's, there's too much hate here. Little do those people realize that even though your intentions are good to minimize hate, we all want less hate. But when you ban quote unquote, hateful content, you create more hate on the internet. That is what amplifies and radicalizes conversations. It's like people feel like the victim. They have to go over to some sketchy forum and, you know, hang out there. So. And they have extra grievances, people to complain about. Hey, look, they, they kicked us all off of that. F those guys, you know. Yeah. They, yeah. They kicked us off. That must validate our ideas. That means we're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk about some of the success stories on minds.com that, you know, content creators, writers, musicians, uh, are there any that, that really stand out that, uh, have made the switch and are making, uh, a living over there, even though there's not as many people's on Facebook? Um, I wouldn't say we're at making a living yet. That's pro- that's our goal. I mean, we have a, we have a, a good crew of creators that are making like, you know, a thousand plus bucks a month. And, you know, that's solid. I mean, Twitter doesn't pay people anything. Right. So 
you know, there's definitely a bunch of YouTubers that have come over that are doing well, uh, bloggers, some yeah, artists and musicians. So, but that that is our goal. Now with everything that's happening with COVID, it's just even more relevant to be giving people tools to get extra extra revenue revenue streams. Right. So, um, I mean, even like Airbnb, one of the trailblazers of the sharing economy, you know, helping any random person make money from a extra room, you know, they were, they were on the, on the edge of the spear when it came to helping individuals make money independently. You know, I know people who were making like, hundred K a year from renting out Airbnb rooms. And it was like their full-time gig. Right. That's amazing. I think that's a beautiful thing. Airbnb, they just had to lay off like 25% of their workforce and they were about to go public and now they're screwed. Yeah. Um, it's just unbelievable. So, you know, we have, you can connect your bank account when you sign up. Well, you know, you, people can send you money. Um, if you're, if you're a pro user, we will actually pay for the traffic that you drive. That's a little bit more difficult. Like you kind of have to have an audience to make that worth it. And we're doing more of like a co-op model where we're actually splitting our revenue with the creators who bring us traffic. So we're taking, yeah, a chunk of our, our plus and pro revenue and, and sharing it, giving people an RPM for every thousand page views, you know, give you like five or 10 bucks and uh, for referrals and actually sales commissions we're working on as well. So if like you refer people who get pro, you get uh 25% of that on a recurring basis. So we're just trying to be really creative and add in as many different variations on monetization and, and, and see what catches. Yep. So uh, you mentioned on the other show with that, uh, people like Milo and Gavin McKennis and stuff like that. Has, has anybody who's had a big audience elsewhere and been deplatformed, are, are all those... Are, are those guys on mines and are they thriving? Uh, or are they... I think I, Milo's, I, I'm pretty sure he claimed his account. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had like, you know, Sargon and uh, that whole crew, people like, yeah, Jordan Peterson, those, those you know, intellectual dark web type, right. type crowd came over. And yeah, for sure. I mean, not all of them, but... To be honest, I think that we still have some work to do in terms of the UX, like I was talking about in the beginning before I would even expect everybody to be like, oh, you know, let's let's leave Facebook or Twitter. It's just, you know, un- until the UX is totally perfect and, and competitive, I don't expect a, a totally mass massive shift. Anyone who's listening, if you do want to see the latest interface that we've been working on, Go to minds.com slash canary, C-A-N-A-R-Y, and turn that on. And that'll show you the new interface, which is literally 50 times more improved from the, the current live version. I think we'll be putting that live next week. And o- over the next couple of months, there's just going to be massive improvements to the app. So, yeah, man, I just try to be patient with it. And, you know, people... It's it, it's inevitable. It's going to happen, and it's not necessarily right. going to be us that becomes you know the next big thing. It's going to be a group of of apps, 
And, and what we're going to see is a group of alternative social networks and messaging apps and browsers rise up to be competitive with the current establishment. So, you know, and that's going to take place over the next five years. So in five years, we're, you know, we'll have this conversation again and we'll say, we'll, we will be able to look at the top hundred websites in the world and see, okay, so you have Facebook, Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, Snapchat, TikTok, and then you've got, you know, Brave Browser, you know, hopefully Minds, you know, other crypto-centric projects. We're going to see, and then it's going to turn into a true war for the web. And how do you think they're, the entrenched companies are going to respond to that? Do you think they'll try to get the government to regulate you guys or, or what do you see them doing? Honestly, I don't, they, they can't, it can't be stopped. It's not, I think that they will actually ultimately start to shift their behavior. And I've been saying this from the beginning that if, Google would just like open source all their code and start respecting people's privacy and, and embrace this movement. Right. They would rapidly make this whole, this whole thing obsolete because Google has the best tech in the world. They have the engineers too, who could easily decentralize the web and, but they would be giving up a lot of control if they did that, you know, basically when you signed up for Google, you would be opted out to all the surveillance by default. And you would, if you opt in, you know, first of all, they should be paying people just for opting into that program. Right. So they, they would be giving up if, if they really embraced these principles, they, they would be giving up billions of dollars. And, um, but in the long term, they'll need that because the, you know, that's the only way that anyone's ever going to trust them is if they offer these these kinds of more freedom-based options. So what they're going to do, I would guess, is wait till the last possible second and then start. And they already sort of do this. Like, you know, Google does build a lot of open source software and they release it. Like Angular, we actually use some of the open source tools that Google has built and Facebook also, but it's so ridiculous because it just shows that they're aware of the value of open source, but they only release more base layer infrastructural tools to the public because they know that they need that developer support yeah. on and on the base layer and they want to get their foot in the door there so that's where they're starting to release things open source, but like their main apps are totally secretive and locked down. So they're well aware of what they're doing and it's just a very calculated game and they, they'll probably try to buy up, you know, companies like us as, as, as we, as we grow and they'll try to just dominate it. But ultimately I think that, it's good for them to embrace change. I want them to change. I consider it positive if that happens. So yeah. we'll see. What you're describing almost sounds like how the alcohol and tobacco companies have treated marijuana. They lobbied against mm. it for a long time and now they're 
trying to to get into that market. So um, that that's interesting that mm-hmm. if one of these guys like Google would break away, they could defeat all the other. You're saying they could, you know, in very simple terms, they could force all these other top level companies to change too. Oh yeah, for sure. If 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 one of them made that move. It, it would be really hard because we don't even know when it, when it comes to proprietary code, you know, it, it may be that they don't even, there's, there's, there's probably a whole web of licenses behind the scenes that make it so that it, to untangle those licenses and even enable the code to be opened up would be like just a decade long legal <laughs> issue to even make happen. So I, but yeah, I mean, if, if one of these companies would just step up and say, listen, we, we went down this path, we did it because of this, we're switching gears, we're embracing freedom, you know, we still want to, and, and you can, it's not like if you embrace freedom, you're suddenly like endorsing hate speech and, and all this stuff, like you can still provide people with really good filtering controls so that you don't have to see what you don't want to see and you're protecting kids and you know there's family friendly spaces you don't have to take away people's freedom in order to give them a safe experience you right. can you just need you, you can still allow people to access that you know more edgy stuff i mean google search is a good example like YouTube is way more locked down from a content perspective than Google search. How so? Well, like you can search all sorts of crazy stuff on Google search. I mean, go ahead. Right. Type in the the craziest stuff you can think of and you you will find things that you would never find on YouTube. Now, why does that make sense? It's like, well, Google, hold on a second. If you actually believe that you know, this content is so harmful, it shouldn't be allowed. Why would you allow it on Google search, but you don't allow it on YouTube? It seems like you do think that censorship is bad, but why are you acting differently on these two different arms of your company? Yeah. Um, Let's talk about, uh, you went to the White House recently, is that correct, for a social media summit? What was that like? Was Trump, did you meet him or in the same room there? Yeah, it was... uh, it was interesting. I think it could have been a little bit more balanced. It w- I mean, granted, I think that more conservatives are getting the backlash of censorship on social media these days, but liberals do experience it too, particularly like anti-establishment, anti-war yep. that, you know, more real progressives are getting, are getting hit too. LGBTQ communities get hit, which is ironic. Um, but they do get hit. And I think that they should have invited more of those types because the, a lot of the mainstream media just attacked the whole event as being some sort of like far right, you know, festival. Right. And, but you know, overall, I think it was awesome that they, that they pulled that together. I was uh, really happy to be invited. I think it was productive. I think we talked about important issues, talked about some potential solutions and yeah, the fact that they're, you know, entertaining that is good. He said that uh, he would be, he would definitely be considering joining some alternatives. 
I think he's waiting too long to do that. But mm. at the same time, you know, like I was saying before, I think that the UX of, of all of these alternative apps needs to improve before, before they move. And, you know, maybe he wants to start his own, his own network. He could. So, um, you know, well, it, well, what are some of the, what are some of the good ideas, uh, other good ideas that came out of that? Well, they were sort of debating regulation and, and what that would look like. And obviously it's very risky to, you know, the, the, there's very high probability of bad regulation that has collateral damage that, you know, even if you break up, you, you can't break up Google and Facebook in the same way that you could break up companies for antitrust back in the day. It's not going to have the same effect because these are technology companies and, you know, whether you cause them to like incorporate different entities, the tech is all still just as catastrophic. So you need to actually, I, I would argue that the, if you were going to regulate anything, you should make them expose their algorithms so that people can actually see what they're signing up for and see how they are manipulating information. So I think actually, I know, wonder if, it, I yeah, wonder if they could take it that if you have contracts with the government, then you have to do that. If that, that would be a way around the first amendment concerns on that. Yeah, or, no, I mean, I don't think that Facebook should have, you know, they have the right to police their, their platform, how they want to. But the problem is that they brought all of these networks brought people in under the presumption that it was a, a, a public commons for conversation. And it was never like this back in the day, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Google and Facebook, you know, you could say most stuff. Um, I think it was maybe a little bit more locked down on, on Facebook, but I mean, Twitter was like, they, their motto was the free speech wing of the free speech party. Right. And they've completely pivoted. So that's sort of false advertising because you, everyone came in under this presumption, spent tons of time and money to build up their their audiences on these on these networks, and then they just changed the whole deal. Yeah. So you know, another bill that was proposed, I think, was one that would actually force the companies to have a first minute, first amendment based content policy, so that it just wasn't even an issue. That you know, and to be honest, that that would. It would be easier for them if they would just do that. There's, yeah. They would have to not have like 50,000 content moderators. They could have less content moderators. It would just be more obvious like, look, this is a neutral platform. As long as it's legal, it can be here. You can still put stuff behind a, a blur filter if it's extreme stuff. But I don't know what the chances are of, of that actually happening. Yeah. Well, before you go, I, I got to get your take on some of this COVID-19 stuff. Um, this is um, so much to talk about there. How, do you, um, you have any comments on like how the media is handling this? Are we getting good information? Um, what? Yeah, I, I don't feel confident in the data at all. And I also don't feel confident in no certainly not in the coverage and it's it's sad that it's getting politicized you know right. th it's really sad that it's like oh if you wear a mask you're it's like that it's turning to mask left wing no mask right wing 
That's right. what they're trying to create. And that's so scary because it's not that simple. I think that there's definitely uh, super valid concerns about the pandemic and being and being safe. And, you know, a lot of people on the right were advocating for, you know, social distancing and flattening the curve and all of that. But then now that it's gotten to the point where, you know, the, the lockdowns are just continuing, the economy is getting destroyed. It does. It seems like politics is coming into it because maybe it, when lockdown started off to be, you know, in good intent, now political motivations are getting involved with the continuation of them. And again, we don't know, you know, the testing is just scary because apparently it doesn't even have to be confirmed COVID for it to be counted as a COVID death. Right. And I, I don't know. I don't want, I, I'm the opposite of an expert on this, but I just wish the media would be a little bit more balanced about it. And, you know, the, when you turn on the news, you should just, the journalists should just be grilling government officials. Yeah. That's what should be happening. It shouldn't be like putting the government officials up on pedestals. And it seems like that's happening on both the left and the right, depending on, you know, what the political goals are. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's super complicated. Misinformation is a huge problem also, but, you know, banning misinformation is also problematic because there's probably going to be some true information that gets banned when you ban misinformation. And, you know, it's not illegal to be wrong about something. You could write a scientific paper that is totally wrong, but does that mean that that scientific paper doesn't deserve to be read? Right. Um, well, I just had a question. Of course it, it, it flew out of my mind. Oh, uh, you're talking about the, uh, reporters. I would love to see a reporter with a social sciences background or, or coming at it from that a- aspect, asking one of these governors about the testing and the data and all that, because the little bit I know about all that stuff is, it seems to me if, if every state is collecting data in a different way, mm-hmm. then w- what, and then you put all those things into a national pile, then you, it's garbage in garbage out. Right. So, but a great, greater, um, a greater concern for me is just like what you said, that the, the media is not oppositional at all. Um, I I can't think of the last time I saw somebody who was asking uh, tough substantive questions. What, why do you think, why do you think the media has come to that? I don't know. I mean, you would think with the almost uh, just absurd number of press conferences that are happening that there would be some real substance to come out of it. And, you know, everyone's attention is on this and it's like, well, wait a second. Why can't we just have like an, a nonstop streaming press conference with like all of the best minds, you know, get Elon Musk in there talking to Trump and, you know, get, 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 let's, let's see this debate really happen. Right. You know, we need to have the skeptics of the lockdowns with the, you know, scientists, everyone just go sit in a room and start streaming. 
Like what is, why aren't we having, you know, like a real conversation? It seems like it's just government official, you know, giving answers, even in the Trump press conferences. Like I feel like he should just invite more scientists on, like, let's have debates about it. Right. I don't know. It's just, it just doesn't seem like it's deep enough. It's, it's just very shallow and it's getting to the point where we just need, we need both sides in one room. Right. Like it, it would it would almost be cool if like Fox and CNN and MSNBC and you know the right wing and the left wing media like did like a mega conference together with all the scientists on both sides and just do like a week long live streaming conference just like hashing it out. Yep. Get all the numbers up. Have people voting on it. You know, let's. I, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but this is just it's sort of like insane. Like you don't even know what to think. Yeah. Um. Speaking of insane, um, yeah, I, I uh, uh, we you were talking with Thad about the left and kind of how left leftists of today are a lot different than than before. And I think you kind of came from the left too, from an anti-war uh, perspective. Why why can't you find an anti-war Democrat? uh, liberal these days, what happened there? It seems like all the guys who I had as professors, uh, in college in the mid nineties were all 60s style liberals who at least supported free speech and were anti-war and you could respect that. But that, but that, that went away, it seems like, or, or, or am I wrong? Is it there? They just don't have the airtime or. Yeah. I don't think that there's a, a mainstream network that, is like classical liberal. No, that seems to be what's missing. Like you're seeing a bunch of YouTubers. You've got, you know, Tim Pool, David Pakman, Kalinsky, um, Jimmy Dore, Abby Martin. You know, you've got kind of this crew of of internet influencers who are, you know, principled people. You know, the Chomskys, the the, the Glenn Greenwald, like that kind of sphere of more honest actors and you know they're the ones who will talk to the right so that's why you'll see like glenn greenwald go on tucker carlson because you know they disagree but they're mature enough to have the conversation so you know what we're not you know you have a network like democracy now you um which is a little bit you know, more representative of, of that group, but they're, you know, they don't have the airtime, like you said. And I think that Fox news is actually doing a better job in terms, I mean, particularly Tucker's show, just wanting to have the conversation with both sides. And you don't see that on the left. You don't see MSNBC inviting on, like, why don't they want that? Don't they understand that that's the most interesting content? Well, but do they want interesting or do they want stuff that basically keeps people in this semi-conscious, obedient, uh, receptive state to, to what they want to put out? Yeah. The- yeah. But they, but also, you know, in terms of numbers, viral, virality, all of this type of, uh, you know, if apparently they're not confident enough in the 
the uh, magnitude and weight of their ideas if, if they're not willing to have those conversations because those are the conversations that people want to see. Right. Those, those are the most fiery debates. That that's that's the best media. Um, you know, I thought it was pretty interesting. I remember when I think it was CNN that had on um, that alt right guy uh, Richard Spencer. They might I think they interviewed him for something, and everyone freaked out. And it was like, well, why are you freaking out? Like, okay, yeah, he has he, he's he's off in La La Land, but like it's you need to be able to have the conversation with all sorts of extreme people. So in, in order, I mean, even to just show how absurd they are. And I think that that's what, you know, there's this idea that you're supporting somebody by having them on your show. And that's just ridiculous. It's like all about the framing of your, of your interview. You can, you can frame any interview to, make it very clear what your intent is and that you disagree. And, but at the same time, I think it's okay to be nice to somebody who you completely disagree with and think is a ridiculous person. Like just because you're being nice to somebody who is, you know, violent or racist or whatever, that doesn't mean that you are endorsing, you know, you're, you're setting an example for them of how to behave. Yeah. So I, and I think that that's one of the biggest myths that needs to get shattered with regards to discourse, whether it's on social networks or, you know, news media is you need to be able to talk to everybody all across the spectrum, the most ridiculous people to, you know, the smartest experts. Otherwise it's just, I don't know. I, I, I don't have confidence in, in where we're going if we can't have those hard conversations. But uh, sounds like on minds.com you can, right? Yeah. So, absolutely. so, so there, there's your uh, intro for your pitch on why someone should uh, go get an account on minds.com. A lot of people I know have been thinking about it. I, I saw a friend of mine just yesterday um, or, or two days ago say, hey, I, you know, I signed up for Minds a couple of years ago and I, I'm back on it now and it's changed for the better. And, uh, you know, so what? what would you say to someone who checked it out a couple of years ago and, and didn't stick with it? Why, why should they come back and give you guys a look? I think that if you're hanging out on mainstream networks every day and you care about these ideas, then, you know, checking in once in a while on the alternative apps is just, first of all, it helps us grow. You know, it makes our numbers go up, which just, helps us you know when the more people that log in that is what helps us grow so um you know you kind of got to vote with your with your energy online a little bit and you know we're not claiming to be perfect and you know there there are issues but you know check out minds.com slash canary check out the new interface interface give us your suggestions you know we're basically directly building what users are asking us to build we're all very accessible so, you know, but I'm also like very allergic to the idea of pitching in general. Yeah, so I'm, not, I, I, I'm not a salesman either. I hate it. I just, it doesn't even work. Like you can't, you can't, you shouldn't have to convince people to come. It should just work in a way that makes you want to come. So, 
I don't know. What a lot of people love is the whole token reward system. Like where we reward tokens. One token gives you a thousand views. So you can like earn more views through our system in an automated way. You get more exposure. A lot, that, that's probably the most popular feature. But again, like if, if you have to be convinced you're sort of not there yet, yeah. you, you need to come to that realization on, on your own. You know, why, why you're spending your time in the way that you're spending it. And like, you need to evaluate that and understand that you are supporting what you do online is who you support. So even if you're against these ideas, if you're just like complaining about it on Twitter, it's like, okay, I don't really feel bad for you. You're not, because you're just, it, you're whining on the platform that is doing the bad thing. Yeah. That's, that's not going to stop it. Well, I'm definitely going to check it out again. I, I briefly did a couple of years ago and I think it was during a time when I was really trying to cut down on uh, social media. And so that was a bad time for me to get uh, involved. Uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I think, think people I'm, get, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be this big deal. Yeah. Like, you know, check in doesn't it you don't have to leave facebook you don't have to leave twitter just like dabble and then you know boot you know get some tokens boost your stuff see how it goes connect with some new people you know the what the other thing that people really like is just knowing that they can speak their mind without worrying about that kind of thing yeah you know you, you just you, there's a there's a chilling effect of how you speak on the big networks that you don't even realize yeah that it's doing it to you. Yeah. So you, and you sort of, you know, the, the feeling freedom feels good. So yeah, hit me up. Um, I'm at minds.com slash Ottman and yeah, hopefully uh, we can connect on there when, when you. Okay. Yeah, we will. I had one more question that, that uh, just came up. Do you have a lot of users who um, are on your site and who complain about, Hey, this guy said a mean thing. Mm. Not tip. I mean, sometimes with like some, I mean, you're never going to avoid that on any social network, but typically people have a much thicker skin and understanding that actually when you see some comment that's, you know, hate speech or whatever, it's like, by you seeing that and by that existing there, that's sort of like a vent for society to express itself. And if by that not being there, it is going to be metastasizing on, on some other network. So I think yeah. that, you know, what, what I would just say is if you see anything like that that you don't want to see or something that bothers you, that's not us. That's not like, oh, minds, this is what minds is. Like you can't define minds. Minds is just a network. You're going to see different content. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people. I think they come on and, you know, maybe they see something that they're just like, oh, like, oh, I see what this is. And then they assume that just because they happen to see one post like that, like define, I think that's what a lot of people do with their experience on, on a network. And the fact that Facebook and Twitter have, have, you know, taken that responsibility on their shoulders and sort of claimed responsibility for the content. 
that has caused people to sort of expect that they should never see anything that they don't want to see. Right. But I mean, when you're walking down the street, you don't like call the cops if you see like some crazy person on yeah. the side of the road. <laughs> right. You shouldn't, you should never call the cops, but that, <laughs> that, that's a subject for another uh, yeah. uh, podcast. But so minds.com slash Ottman is where you hang out. That's where I hang uh, out. Yep. Any other contact pieces of info that uh, people need to know? That's my main spot. Okay. All right. Well, I uh, really appreciate your time and I, I wish nothing but the best of luck to minds and I'll, uh, come over and try to contribute a little to myself. Yeah. When we get this uh, posted, I would love it if you would post it on there and we'll get it. Shared yeah, I'll yeah. do that. Uh, I will right. definitely do that. Okay. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thanks All right. For having me. All right. Bye Bill. Later. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Bill Ottman for his time and all his hard work on what's definitely a worthwhile project. I know I'll be checking out minds.com and I'm sure a lot of you will be too. Maybe someday the Mises caucus, we can move all our stuff over there too and get away from Zuckerberg. Um, as always, thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on decentralized revolution, get email updates at takehumanaction.com and a great discussion and up to the minute news in our private Facebook group. Just search in Facebook for the libertarian party Mises caucus. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.